Funding for this podcast comes from MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software, accelerating the pace of engineering and science. Learn more at MathWorks.com. Support for this podcast comes from Is Business Broken, a podcast from BU Questrom School of Business. ESG, or Environmental Social Governance, promises to help the bottom line and the planet at the same time. Is it too good to be true? Stick around until the end of this podcast for a preview of an episode digging into that very question. From NPR and WBUR Boston, I'm Jane Clayson, and this is On Point. The reopening of America. President Trump says it's time, and he lays out a three-phase plan. Look, I don't want anyone coming back that isn't in position to come back. The last thing we want is for, let's say, a New York to come back too soon or a New Jersey to come back too soon. We want them to come back when they're ready, but they're really heading in a good direction. In Michigan, protesters fed up with stay-at-home orders say they want to get back to work and back to their lives. From small inconveniences like lawn care or haircuts to just getting food on the table. Our community is struggling. My husband is on unemployment for the first time in our life. And it's unwillingly that we're taking unemployment. We want to go back to work. It's our weekly news roundtable with a great panel this hour. With me from Washington via Skype is Margaret Talov, politics and White House editor at Axios. Margaret, always great to have you. Hi, Jane. Thank you. Great to be here. From New York, Steve Leisman. He's a senior economics reporter for CNBC. Steve, Steve, great to have you, too. Great to be here. Thanks. And Julie Rovner joins us from Kensington, Maryland. She's chief Washington correspondent for Kaiser Health News and host of Kaiser's What the Health podcast. Julie, thanks for joining us. Nice to have you. Thank you for having me. So the White House has unveiled uh, this roadmap for reopening America. Let's start there. These are a set of non-binding guidelines, a three-phase plan. Margaret Talev, help us understand what's in it. Yeah, uh, this is it's the opening up America again plan. And if it sounds like make America great again or keep America great, uh, there are cer- it's certainly uh, uh, shades of uh, sort of President Trump's marketing style in this approach. Um, This is an 18-page plan. You can go online and look at the details, but essentially it sets up um, what they're calling a gated criteria, which is um, a number of kind of thresholds you need to meet to be on track for a phase reopening and then how to do the phase reopening. And what I would say is this, the, the plan taken out of any context, just look at the plan, um, is kind of a PowerPoint, uh, easy to read, but measured uh, set of guideposts that suggest slower, very careful reopenings. (laughs) But the rollout of the plan is made in the context of a rally for the reopening of America. And so the package combined does send some mixed signals about exactly what you're supposed to take away from this. Are you supposed to take away from it that, hey, things are looking up and everything's about to be open? Or are you supposed to look at it and say, wow, some of these states are very far away from reopening. And I think it is um, not the plan itself, but the rollout of the plan that is raising a lot of questions and concerns among among mayors and, and some other governors in the United States. So some mixed signals. Uh, this will take place on a patchwork basis rather than a one-size-fits-all prescription. Here is the president at yesterday's briefing talking about this new plan. Now that we have passed the peak in new cases, we're starting our life again. We're starting rejuvenation 
of our economy again in a safe and structured and very responsible fashion. So, Julie Rovner, safe, structured, responsible. Uh, The guidelines, however, do not include a comprehensive testing program, which many public health experts and governors have asked for. I'm curious what you make of this plan from a public health perspective. Well, if you watch the president sort of during the progression of the week, he, you know, first he said, I have all the power. And then the governors pushed back and said, no, we have the power. And basically what this does is it sets a, gives the governors the responsibility, but also the responsibility that really should be coming from the federal government. Things like testing, like ensuring that healthcare workers have enough personal protective equipment, um, particularly if we start to open up in some of these states and there's a second wave of infections. So there are a lot of questions uh, about, you know, how this plan really would work. And is it really an effort for Trump to say, you're going to use my guidelines, but anything that goes wrong is on you? So some difficult questions, uh, Steve Leisman, that that Julie mentions there. I mean, to be clear, these guidelines do not confront uh, how to pay for the billions of dollars it will take to expand testing, um, how these states are going to get future, you know, supplies, protective equipment. What do you see in this plan from an economic perspective? Well, certainly business has been, uh, I don't want to say clamoring, but they've been pushing this idea that uh, we need to reopen. You know, it was interesting. I was listening to the top of the show and your announcer talking about the two main news items that the president was opening up the economy. And then she used the word, meanwhile, 22 and a half million Americans uh, in the past five weeks have uh, filed for unemployment insurance. That's not really a meanwhile. What's going on here, the first part is directly related to the second. One of the reasons why the president, I think, has been pressured to get this plan out is because of the large numbers of unemployed Americans, uh, especially in areas that aren't as hard hit as the New York area and some of the other metropolitan areas. So, I mean, personally, I'm encouraged that there is a plan. Obviously, we'd like to see more dollars behind it, more science behind it, more data behind it. I guess my big concern is about the messaging, because it feels like it was just kind of yesterday that we were trying to encourage uh, different areas and regions to adhere to the lockdown. And then it seems like the next day we're out talking about opening America. I think there's a lot of confusion as to the message among the American public. But from a business point of view and from, I think, an average American point of view, there's a lot of people who would like to get back to work. So there are some mixed messages, as you mentioned, Margaret Talov. Talk about the this retreat, this reversal uh, for the president. Mr. Trump um, went from claiming earlier in the week that he had total authority when it comes to reopening the economy to telling governors yesterday on a conference call that they could now, quote, call the shots when it comes to all this. What changed for the president? Yeah, I I think you have to look at this uh, on a few different levels at the same time. And one is that it's just always the president's instinct, always, since the beginning of his presidency, whether it has to do with who's the head of his FBI or or the Justice Department uh, to handling of coronavirus uh, to NATO. It is always his instinct to assert that he has the ultimate power, that inside U.S. government, uh, the president has ultimate authority, and that in terms of the world, he is the most powerful world leader. That's just his playbook. And so part of it instinctively was that, right? But uh, part of it was that he wanted the ability to uh, to drive um, some of this conversation on the reopening of the economy because he didn't want his health officials, the doctors uh, who are advising him, 
or some of the Democratic governors who have urged more caution in reopening to be setting the pace. He wanted the ability to set the pace. Two things happen. One is it's just clear, no matter what uh, party you're in, uh, a reading of the Constitution and understanding of states' rights, it is clear that powers uh, not delegated to the president are uh, in the purview of the state. So there was just the basic you know, uh, constitutional argument. But the second is perhaps more important, and that is that, um, like, with power comes responsibility, right? And if you have the ultimate authority and you make the wrong call on reopening or uh, reopening happens too quickly, um, you know, it will, you will be blamed for it. Uh, there is a third element to this, which is that many of the, not many, a few of the governors uh, began to get ahead of the president. You saw, you've seen both these regional coalitions mm -hmm. like Midwestern governors, Northeastern governors, some of the governors on the West Coast putting their heads together um, so that they can set, they don't want this checkerboard of borders. Like if you're in the Northeast and you're a bunch of states all clustered close together, what good does it do if one state is closed, if the other state is open? So they kind of have these pacts on opening. And then you have governors uh, like in Texas and perhaps in Florida um, getting almost getting ahead of the president in recent days saying they're going to come out, uh, you know, with announcements on the reopening. And so I think the president uh, saw that for both, you know, political purposes, risk management purposes, policy purposes, just realistic purposes, that what he needed to do is reset this so that he could suggest that he had a lot of power, but was going to go ahead and authorize governors mm. to exert it in their own way. Mm. Right. Julie Robner, so several governors have already extended their stay-at-home orders. And it, it's very clear from what Margaret says in just watching all this that the governors are going to be making the determination about whether they're ready to move through these phases, one, two, three, that the White House has laid out. And the governors will be in charge of, of testing in their individual states, which is really the key to opening things back up in the first place. That's right. I mean, and there are, you know, it's not just a matter of testing capacity. There are, you know, shortages of the swabs to do the test, of the, the reagent, the chemicals that you need to actually conduct the test. So there are lots of shortages. Testing capacity is nowhere near what it needs to be if you're going to start letting people move around. There are also a lot of really unanswered questions. You know, they talk about taking people's temperatures as they go into public places. Well, now we know there's a lot of spread before people are symptomatic. So somebody might not have a fever, but they might still be spreading the virus. So there's really a lot uh, that we need to sort of get our arms around before we can start letting people interact again on a large-scale basis. And that includes in states where there aren't that many cases now. As we've seen in places like South Dakota, you can go from, you know, zero to 60 really quickly. Pretty fast, yeah. And Steve Leisman, I mean, this gives cover to, to mainly Republican governors in states in the West and in the South that have not been as hard hit by the pandemic to begin opening sooner. Although, as Julie just said, these things can go pretty fast, pretty quickly. What are the politics in all this to your mind? You know, I think that's right. I think that there are places, uh, Wyoming, Montana, that, that just haven't experienced what other uh, areas are, are experiencing. And those uh, governors would like to reopen. And I actually don't see a reason why they can't. There comes a question, I think, of sort of interstate travel becomes an interesting mm -hmm. question. Uh, we're coming up on the summer uh, holiday season, and, uh, you know, people are going to go up to Cape Cod from New York or up to Maine. Uh, what do those states do? They're, they're, they've had a good run of things. Uh, 
you know, I know the uh, uh, population of Jackson Hole, Wyoming is going to swell with a lot of people from California. Are those governors going to be quite so happy uh, about opening up their economies then? I would just want to add one other thing to what uh, was uh, Julie was saying earlier. Um, you know, business may be in favor of opening up and opening up sooner, but they have the same problem with testing that's going to exist in the larger economy. They have to think about issues of how do I bring people back to my workforce, in a, back to my workplace in, in a way that's safe for them, safe for my company. You can imagine there are liability issues. So um, the the plan itself is, is interesting and, and important to perhaps have, but in terms of execution, Without the testing, this is what business leaders are clamoring for. Um, it's not going to be able to work. Steve Leisman, Julie Rovner, Margaret Talev, stick with me. We're talking about the week's major stories in our Week in Review, about the COVID economy, what COVID is doing to our lives. Much more after this break. I'm Jane Clayson. This is On Point. We'll be right back. Support for the On Point podcast comes from Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform that lets you find candidates fast. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash On Point. That's Indeed.com slash On Point. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Support for this podcast comes from Is Business Broken? A podcast from BU Questrom School of Business. A recent episode featured a debate about ESG, or environmental social governance. This sounds like more work than just putting your money into a social impact fund. It's a lot more work. Yeah. Anybody who thinks there's an easy solution here is either engaged in puffery, greenwash, or deceiving themselves. Stick around until the end of this podcast for a preview of the episode. This is On Point. I'm Jane Clayson. We're taking stock of the pandemic, politics, and an economy on the edge this hour with Margaret Taleff, politics and White House editor at Axios, Steve Leisman, senior economics reporter at CNBC, and Julie Rovner, chief Washington correspondent for Kaiser Health News and host of Kaiser's What the Health podcast. Let's go to the economy. Um, tremendous economic fallout, obviously, uh, during this pandemic. More than 5.2 million U.S. workers filed for unemployment claims last week. That pushes the four-week total to a staggering 22 million Americans now out of work. And the devastation, Steve Leishman, uh, has spread to every corner of the economy. Hotels, restaurants, mass retailers, manufacturing. These are numbers without precedent, Steve. Yeah, you have to – well, you can't even go back. It literally is the, ex, uh, the definition of off the charts. Um, for example, at the height – of the 2008-2009 crisis, we had maybe six or seven million people on what we call continuing claims. In other words, they've been accepted to the program and they're receiving benefits. We've done that in a week. Uh, last week, it was 6.6 million. It's come down to 5.2 million, but there's a very interesting phenomenon going on that we're trying to report out of the states, which is that the state unemployment offices are well o overwhelmed with the uh, uh, calls and the uh, desire of people to file for claims. So they can't really uh, bring people onto the program without um, 
uh, getting them into the system. Computers are overwhelmed, busy signals all over the country. So we actually looked at the uh, percentage uh, of, of uh, workers in a given state that have uh, received claims. And uh, places like Michigan and Pennsylvania is one out of five. Uh, and, and that mm. sounds a bit like they're doing a, a – it's a terrible, terrible economy. It also, though, tells us that their state unemployment offices may be doing a better job. Go down to Florida, it's like one out of 16, one out of 17. And just yesterday, the Florida governor uh, put somebody else in charge of their uh, web system to try to get uh, um, uh, going on that. But there were maybe tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of people in Florida who can't get claims. So those numbers could be high and substantial in the weeks ahead. Right. U.S. retail sales uh, suffered their biggest plunge on record in March. Another staggering figure, 8.7 percent drop as businesses close, shoppers uh, cut way back on spending. Margaret Talev, I continue to hear economists say that this is the deepest, fastest and most broad-based recession we've ever seen in this country. What's going on behind the scenes at the White House uh, with all this panic, I would presume? Yeah, it's sort of barely controlled panic. I mean, one is that you really have seen them push very quickly uh, on the stimulus, things like the SBA funding, which, as everyone knows, ran out like in a matter of days. And it's just like the driest wall that will eat gallons of paint. You know, it's a bottomless pit of need for these small businesses that are going to have a much harder time making it than than many larger companies. Uh, But the other thing that's going on is that uh, the White House has really been scrambling to try to figure out how to take advice constructively um, from businesses and how to keep some of these businesses kind of with the president, so to speak. And so you've had, there was going to be the formation of this task force, and then it ended up being like a bunch of other different groups and a series of rolling telephone calls. But in any case, this kind of constant interaction from businesses, large and small, uh, with the White House and a lot of uh, frustration, both from the small businesses and from the uh, bankers and financial institutions that are trying to figure out like how to process mm-hmm. all of this. It's just, it is, in fairness to the White House, an unprecedented uh, challenge. Um, but, but politically, which is where the rubber meets the road, I mean, the health concerns are clearly much more important. Uh, people's lives are more important. But for a president who's running for re-election, the economy and uh, how people are experiencing this and who they blame for it are incredibly important. And the president's uh, strongest suits, um, which have helped him get through uh, some uh, very uh, uh, some other issues for which he's been highly criticized. But as long as the economy was OK, the president was OK. So uh, just on the face of it, this poses it's almost too obvious to state a huge political challenge for the president. One of our listeners uh, from Buffalo, New York, James, called us about the stimulus package, and he has a question. He wondered about the unintended consequences of paying workers to stay home. Here he is. If you're working, and if you're if you're poor, you don't get make a lot of money. You're working essentially, and you can pay less than people are staying at home. So you're 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 working more and getting paid less, and they're staying at home getting paid more. This is so bewildering to me. So they have an opportunity to, to, to grow during all this calamity, and you have to go out there, get in front of the virus, and still work and get paid less. Why is the stimulus paying people to stay home more than it paying people to stay out in the workplace? Steve Leishman, do you have a response so, to that? Um, that is true in some states and some areas uh, with the uh, – uh, 
amount of unemployment benefits as increased by Congress and then another $600 put on top of that, uh, will in some cases the average benefit will be greater than the average me- median wage. So that's not going to be true for a lot of workers. It's going to be true for some. Um, and that could possibly delay some people going back to work uh, as quickly as they otherwise might. Uh, this is a uh, st- strong conservative criticism of the unemployment benefit program that Congress passed. Um, I-, I think that I would push back a bit against it by saying that People want to go back to work. They will go back to work. They'll be concerned that their job is not there for them if they go back. I think the uh, amount of money being paid to people for unemployment benefits is going to be overstated as to the effect it's going to have on the recovery. People do want to go back to work. No question about it. Uh, There are the health concerns. This is a a conflict, um, obviously, that we're dealing with here. There were protests in several states this week, a backlash of sorts to the stay-at-home orders uh, that have been given in those states. The biggest one happened in Michigan. Um, this was Wednesday. Protesters gathered uh, from the, uh, to the state capitol in Lansing, Michigan, demanding an end to the state's social distancing restrictions. And they chanted, lock her up, about Democratic Governor Gretchen Whitmer. Later that day, Whitmer was on NBC, and here's what she had to say about the protests. This group, uh, this small group of people that came together without masks on, who were passing out candy and with bare hands to children, who were congregating together, who were, you know, wearing, brandishing their weapons, who were uh, having, you know, posters of um, being anti-choice. I mean, this was a political rally. It was a political rally that is going to endanger people's lives because this is precisely how COVID-19 spreads. To be clear, Julie, um, Margaret Tolliff, there was some political theater here, no question, because in Michigan, most people up to 70 percent, I think I've read uh, most of the people support these stay at home orders. But I'm just curious, what are you seeing in these protests in Michigan, in Kentucky, in, you know, North Carolina, Utah? What are you seeing here? If you take the politics out of it and just take them at face value, they do reflect um sort of deep, longer, more embedded economic concerns that in many ways track with um, uh, challenges to the manufacturing sector, uh, the tensions with China, the impact of uh, trade policy, but also trade wars. Uh, I don't think you can take the politics out of it, though, because these are also Michigan in particular, an essential battleground state. Gretchen Whitmer uh, has had extremely high popularity uh, or approval ratings, but also has been eyed as a potential for uh, the shortlist for Vice President Biden's running mates, well, Vice President, well, I guess, in this case, the presumptive nominee, Joe Biden's vice presidential nominee, so mm-hmm. yet to be named. And so um, it's just impossible to completely separate those things. But I think uh, it, Michigan is one of these states where uh, the uh, economy and many workers uh, were kind of concerned about um, long-term employment prospects and jobs anyhow. And uh, this has just uh, put an enormous spotlight and expedited a lot of those tensions. And there are people who really um, need to get back to work, want to get back to work. And um, it's just... Like for many people, for people who are able to work from home, for people for whom this is just like it's scary, but it's they're able to adjust. Um, it's a completely different experience than people who either have been furloughed 
uh, have lost their jobs or are continuing to go to work every day outside as they normally would have before. They are just completely parallel experiences. Mm -hmm. And I think in some of these uh, uh, manufacturing states and Rust Belt states, uh, you're seeing this play out. Right. And Julie Ravner, I mean, of course, millions want to get back to work. But the biggest risk with reopening too quickly is that we lose the gains that we've made over the past few weeks. Right. And there's the tension. There are examples around the world, places like Singapore, which has a fantastic public health system. You start to open things too early like they did. And you have a significant resurgence of the virus, Julie. That's right. Singapore, after, you know, being held up as the sort of most successful the model, uh, yeah. right, the, the mitigator of this is back on lockdown because they started to let people out uh, and it started to spread again. I mean, this is basically you have across the ideological spectrum of public health experts saying we really can't do this until we can test way more people than we are testing now. We're going to have to test healthcare workers. We're going to have to test them maybe once a week. I mean, you really are not going to be able to stop the spread until you can figure out who is doing the spreading. And we can't do that yet. There must be some um, examples or lessons that we can be learning right now from essential businesses, Julie, that are right in the middle of this, right? A lot of people have continued to work. They have to work. What can we learn from those businesses as far as what's worked and what hasn't as we sort of trickle into getting more people back into the workforce? Well, obviously, the one that we all see is the is the grocery business. Um, you know, we, we many of us are still going to the grocery store. Those of us who tried to get delivery and can't because all the delivery spots are taken. But that, yes, there's a lot of people out there. We are starting to see more people wearing masks uh, around where I live in the, the national capital region. Masks are now required in public places. We're starting to see sort of plastic, you know, dividers and one way aisles in grocery stores, things that are trying to sort of enforce this physical distancing. But then at the same time, we start to see studies that say maybe six feet isn't enough. Maybe you need to be 20 feet apart from other people. So, you know, I think we're sort of learning as we go. It's important to remember this virus is only a few months old. We don't have any long-term data on it because it didn't exist last year at this time. Margaret Teller? I just want to jump in. Uh, Axios uh, has been doing this really interesting poll for the last five weeks with uh, with Ipsos, the global research firm, uh, where we look at how people are experiencing and perceiving the threat. And our finding this week, just touching on grocery stores, I thought was so interesting. 70% of Americans now saying that they think going to the grocery store is a risky act. I mean, they're still going unless they can get it delivered from home. But they consider it risky every time they put on their mask and maybe gloves and suit up. Mm -hmm. And the way you're seeing it break down uh, racially and demographically was also quite interesting in our poll. Women are much more concerned. (laughs) Maybe this wouldn't surprise anyone about going to the store. They're more concerned about the health risks. Um, But uh, look at the communities of color. Uh, considered a much riskier proposition. Uh, the uh, respondents who were Hispanic in our poll, 80% said they thought it was risky. Mm. Uh, 78% of African Americans thought it was risky. Uh, white grocery shoppers found it less risky, and older people found it much less risky, much less risky, which was interesting, mm, interesting. and I think has to do with those special, you know, one hour at the beginning, mm-hmm. you know, an early hour so that you um, kind of the idea of safer shopping. Uh, but if you're just kind of at the crowded store with everybody else trying to deal with this, uh, you're finding it scary, but you have to go anyway because you need food. Steve Leesman, jump in here. 
No, I was just going to say uh, a lot of people are looking at what's happening in Germany. Germany has laid out a plan to reopen its economy relatively soon, uh, letting large stores open up, letting uh, small shops open up that uh, uh, practice social distancing, auto dealerships, uh, putting letting schools open up. So um, I don't know if, if the Trump administration's plan is to front run Germany. Certainly, it seems like there's an opportunity there for us to watch how they're doing and what they're doing. And I think, uh, you know, Julie would be a much better expert on this in terms of the amount of testing that they do and have available there. But certainly Germany seems to have done a better job in keeping uh, death rates down, hospitalization rates down. Um, and, and that's a, a model you think we could watch and see how they do in terms of our ability to open up some of our commerce. Right. And Italy and Spain, Julie Robner, two European nations hardest hit by the pandemic, are also taking small steps to begin easing their restrictions. It's a tricky calculation, right? It is. And, you know, Germany is such an interesting case because we don't really understand why in Germany they've had a fair number of cases, but their death rate has been particularly low. And we're still not sure why that is. I mean, there's a lot of speculation that in Italy and Spain, there were many older people and that skewed their death rates up and many multi-generational households. So easier for people who are out and about to spread it to those older people. But, you know, scientists are scrambling to figure out who's doing what and whether it's working because of what they did or whether it's working because of the way their society is structured. Mm -hmm. Let's stick with the economy here for just a minute before we go to break. Uh, Steve Leisman, let me ask you about the Paycheck Protection Program. This is the new lending program for small businesses. It maxed out on Thursday and stopped accepting claims. Uh, lawmakers cannot agree on how to update this $350 million program. And small businesses around the country are begging Steve for relief. What's the impasse here? Well, I actually want to answer a slightly different question because I want people to understand that while the application process for the $350 billion program has maxed out, mm -hmm. the disbursement process has not. And one of the things we've done a lot of reporting on is trying to figure out, are banks actually giving this money to small businesses? And, and as far as we can tell, it's much less than the $350 billion. It may be in the tens of billions. It could possibly be in the low hundred billion. So on the first order effects, it has been really minimal in the sense that because of issues with the banks and the uh, administration of this from the Small Business Administration and the Treasury Department, banks are having a lot of trouble actually giving the loans. We could talk about that more in depth, but let me just get to your other question, which is that uh, there there is a request for additional money, uh, $250 billion. The Democrats don't seem like they're quite willing to do this for a number of procedural reasons and other things that they may want. But I, I don't think that's I think that money is going to be allocated to this program. Uh, it will get there. Uh, but even that additional money is not going to be enough to tide over small businesses. The Fed has a program where it's going to lend to medium businesses. That's not up and running yet. They had a comment period that closed yesterday. Um, it may be yet a week before the $600 billion from the Fed program gets on the street. And even that's gonna, not going to be enough, which is why the discussion and the debate is not about the second quarter right now. That's going to show an astronomical decline of something like 30%. The debate, the battle right now is about the third quarter. The question is whether or not we're able to rebound and come out of this without real residual damage to the economy. And these programs right now and their effectiveness at this moment are going to determine that. And right now, I have to say the scorecard is not very good. Mm. Margaret Talib, in our last 10 seconds here before the break, how are you seeing this up on Capitol Hill? 
boy. Uh, it is it should not be a matter of partisan division, but it has absolutely become a matter of partisan division. And uh, some of the early research on how the small business um, lending has played out from state to state, blue states versus red states, uh, is only exacerbating those uh, tensions. Margaret Taleb, Steve Leisman, Julie Rovner, stick with us. We're talking about a busy and historic week in the news. More to come after this break. I'm Jane Clayson. This is On Point. We'll be right back. Three decades ago, Sterling Cuneo was an angry, violent teenager facing life without parole. Today, he's a celebrated author and a peacemaker. His journey is a window into how violence is perpetuated in this country, but it's also a story about how people change. There's no better example of a person who's prepared to be released. And about people changing the system. We have to reimagine what we're doing, because what we're doing isn't working. This is Cell Blocks to Mountaintops, a podcast and video series. Subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts. This is On Point. I'm Jane Clayson. On Monday, Meghna Chakrabarty talks to On Point co-host and NPR media correspondent David Falkenflick about the hit that local news is taking during the pandemic. Layoffs, furloughs, and questions about whether local papers can survive this moment. Are you worried about your local newsroom disappearing? What would it mean to you and your community? What valuable information has your local news source provided during this pandemic? We'd love to hear from you on this. Leave us a voicemail, 617-353-0683. Back to our Week in Review now with a great panel, Margaret Tolliff, politics and White House editor at Axios, Steve Leisman, senior economics reporter for CNBC, and Julie Rovner, chief Washington correspondent for Kaiser Health News. I wanted to get this clip in here. This is um, the steakhouse chain Ruth's Chris got a $20 million loan from the small business owner's $350 billion fund within days. But Large and but small businesses and small business owners have not been so lucky, and they've been talking a lot about this. Here's CBS News speaking to the owner of a pizza shop, this one in Illinois. I don't think it's fair that the big guys get everything, the little guys get nothing. Paul's pizza. Paul Gattuso is struggling to keep Paul's pizza and hot dogs open. The 38-year-old Westchester, Illinois restaurant has just eight employees and is still waiting for word about its small business loan. You check your emails hourly. You're waiting anxiously to hear something. I can't do it much longer. I'm trying so hard. Margaret Talley, you talk about the politics about this before uh, the break. I mean, it's that's hard to swallow for a little guy who's, you know, trying to employ a handful of people and, and keep his head above water. Yeah, I think this is very real. And, you know, uh, uh, in better political times, uh, President Trump and the administration have uh, kind of wrapped themselves in the mantle of small business and said that that's uh, the the key to uh, restoring uh, America's economic strength is, you know, by helping the little guy and small businesses are the bedrock of whatever. The truth is, like, it's hard. It is hard to administer these programs. It is hard if you're a smaller business to figure out how to get access to it. There's been a flood of demand. So there, uh, and if you're in an already hard hit state, it's that much harder to kind of put your team together and figure out how to apply and how to, so there's a lot of reasons that are not part of a big business conspiracy, but if it is felt at the small business level, if it is felt like a slight, if it is felt like a giveaway for larger businesses, uh, it, it could become a political problem. And maybe more importantly, it, it could just, uh, prevent 
some some businesses from hanging on, and that actually has an impact in communities all over uh, the country in terms of the local economies. Let me turn for a moment Jane, to can I uh, uh, just weigh in on that? Very sure, quickly, which go is, ahead, Steve. Uh, t- to me, it highlights the uh, lack of a real safety net system in America. Uh, the, the administration had to run this small business program through the banks. And one of the things we heard very quickly from the banks was that they uh, were going to deal with existing customers first. And there were a bunch of reasons for that, in part because they were concerned about the know your customer rules that they were uh, are designed to fight anti anti money laundering. So um, if we're going to do it through the banks, it's going to be hard for everybody to be in the line at the same time, at the same place. The banks are going to prioritize certain companies and bigger companies, companies with credits to to the bank are the ones it appears were the first in line. And there's just no system in America for delivering an equal share of a pie to all businesses at the same time. Which just doesn't sound right, especially in this moment. Thanks, Steve. Let me turn now to the World Health Organization, because this week President Trump announced that the U.S. would stop funding to the WHO temporarily. He also said the WHO promoted China's disinformation about the coronavirus. He said, quote, severely mismanaging and covering up the spread of the coronavirus. Um, Julie Rovner, did the WHO fail here, and is it wise to suspend funding to such an organization in the middle of a crisis? Well, we should point out that President Trump also uh, spread some of China's disinformation early on, too. I think the consensus is the WHO was, was slow to react. To this. And again, that's partly because there's so much we don't know. Um, I think everybody knows at this point, and they knew before this, that you can be dubious about information coming out of China. We're still a little bit dubious about information coming out of China about this. Uh, but I think it's this is not probably the best time to pull the WHO funding. This is obviously a worldwide pandemic, although they were slow to declare it such. Um, and the WHO really you know, needs to be able to do to, to be able to use the expertise that the WHO has, particularly in countries that don't have such developed healthcare systems. When this, you know, starts to spread much more to, to Africa and other parts of the underdeveloped world, it's going to be an even bigger crisis than it is in the developed countries where we're seeing it now. Bill Gates about this tweeted that this move was, quote, as dangerous as it sounds, no other organization can replace them. The world needs WHO uh, now more than ever. Margaret Talev, yeah. um, you know, President Trump blamed the WHO for a 20-fold increase in cases worldwide. How do you see this? Yeah, I, we we already know that the president has been a longtime critic of the United Nations and uh, a longtime critic of the WHO, and that there's uh, the some of the rhetoric that's going to sound very familiar to you here: uh, fairness, dealing with China. The United States is the biggest contributor. These are all kind of themes that he's been sounding for a while ahead of the pandemic. Um, the concern, uh, in particular, is that when you look at the WHO and its uh, role in you know more than 100 countries uh, around the world, it, it is not just dealing with this pandemic. It's dealing with issues like TB, like HIV/AIDS, uh, like Ebola, which nobody wants another round of. And so. One of the big concerns with this pandemic, not just in the United States, but around the world, is what happens when it's a pandemic plus? What happens when it's a pandemic plus a hurricane? Hurricane season is coming. What happens if it's a pandemic plus some other crisis? One of the concerns here is the Trump administration has suggested that to send a signal to the WHO, they could 
you know, may potentially maybe keep some of the funding for other programs, but route them through uh, other organizations that would get them to the same place. I mean, can you imagine in the middle of a pandemic, the Trump administration taking time and resources out to build a parallel strategic structure to figure out how to reroute money to send the WHO a political message? And so, um, you know, I think you've even seen like scholars with the Heritage um, Foundation, like conservative groups um, saying, you know, some of your issues with WHO are well-founded. We should discuss that. But can we please get through this first? It's a good explanation of the tension there. Uh, back in this country, tension between President Trump and Dr. Anthony Fauci um, came to bear. On Sunday, the president retweeted a call to fire Dr. Fauci, who plays a key role, of course, in the president's coronavirus task force. So at his press briefing on Monday, reporters asked him about that. He said he had no intention to fire Fauci. So reporters asked why he retweeted the fire Fauci tweet. And here was the exchange. Today I walk in, I hear I'm going to fire him. I'm not firing him. I think he's what, a wonderful guy. Why did you tweet guy? something that said fire Fauci? Why did you? I retweeted somebody. I don't know. They said fire. doesn't matter. Did you notice that when you retweeted yeah, it? Yeah, I, I noticed everything. So you retweeted really? it even though it said time to fire no, Fauci. No, no, that's somebody's opinion. All that is is an opinion. On Sunday, Dr. Fauci told CNN that the administration could have, quote, saved lives had it acted earlier to enforce social distancing guidelines. On Monday, Fauci walked that back, saying he was answering a hypothetical question and remarked that hypothetical questions can get you into trouble. He then defended the president. The first and only time that Dr. Burks and I went in and formally made a recommendation to the president to actually have a, quote, shutdown in the sense of not really shutdown, but to really have strong mitigation. We discussed it. Obviously, there would be concern by some that, in fact, that might have some negative consequences. Nonetheless, the president listened to the recommendation and went to the mitigation. Julie Robner, what did you make of all that? Uh, I thought Fauci wants to keep his job and felt it would be prudent for him to walk back what was a fairly obvious point that he had made uh, on Sunday, um, which is, I think, I think any, any, not just any public health expert, anybody would say, yes, if we'd started earlier, fewer people would have gotten sick. Um, I don't think he intended it to be a, that's a slap on the president. But as we know, the president is extremely sensitive to, to those sorts of things. Um, I think this is one of those sort of inside Washington uh, flaps, though. I mean, I think there are many, many bigger things that people are worried about uh, than whether Dr. Fauci keeps his job. Margaret Taylor, President Trump uh, made an extraordinary claim this week with regard to his executive power. He threatened to try to force Congress to adjourn so he could fill his administration vacancies without Senate approval. Will you talk about that a little bit? What was the reasoning there? And does that have anything to do with the pandemic? Uh, the president wants to get his nominees through and uh, is frustrated that uh, it's been hard to do that and that Congress is in keeps going in these pro forma sessions. And he singled out um, the Voice of America for criticism. He uh, demanded that the Senate come back and confirm his nominee uh, for the uh, to be CEO of the Broadcasting Board of Governors. Um, this was among his discussions. But look, here's where the rubber meets the road. Number one, uh, he may he technically may have the power to do this. It's never it's not been done. And um, it, I'm not sure Mitch McConnell is like the guy that the president wants to pick a fight with right now. Uh, I think he may have wanted to see whether Mitch McConnell would blink on this. And McConnell did not. 
has not so far. But I think this is, again, the president letting off steam, expressing some frustrations. He's really kind of in the crucible right now. And um, when it comes to the pandemic and the VOA, you know, for example, he doesn't like uh, some of the messaging. And when it comes to how he perceives his strength, uh, he understands that um, the confirmation of nominees, whether they're judges or someone to a board, has helped him uh, to put leverage on his policies moving forward and to show an important part of his base, uh, the conservative movement, uh, that he is uh, taking steps that um, that are in lockstep with uh, people that they favor for some of these positions. So it was very interesting to watch it play out. Uh, but McConnell, who's, who has been right there with the president on so many things and such uh, an important, uh, such an important kind of political ambassador for him, uh, does not does not seem to be intimidated by this call and doesn't seem to have any intention of changing their scheduling when they come back from the pandemic or or how they adjourn. Let's get to presidential politics here for a moment. Uh, This week, Joe Biden got endorsements from two of his former rivals in the race for the Democratic nomination, Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren. And he got a big endorsement from his former boss, President Barack Obama. Here's a bit of that video that Obama released earlier in the week. The kind of leadership that's guided by knowledge and experience honesty and humility, empathy and grace. That kind of leadership doesn't just belong in our state capitals and mayor's offices. It belongs in the White House. And that's why I'm so proud to endorse Joe Biden for president of the United States. Choosing Joe to be my vice president was one of the best decisions I ever made. And he became a close friend. And I believe Joe has all the qualities we need in a president right now. Interesting moment to do this. Margaret Talib, what did you make of the endorsement? Uh, Yeah, I mean, President Obama, because he took himself out of the game in the middle of the primaries, was not going to do this until Bernie Sanders uh, gave his endorsement to Joe Biden. And after that happened, it cleared the path for it. What I thought was really interesting about uh, President Obama's 12-minute video is that there was um, that soundbite of endorsement for Biden uh, embedded into the middle of it. But so much of the rest of the video was about the coronavirus uh, pandemic and about how it uh, both allows and and perhaps necessitates a shift in uh, U.S. policy and in the Democratic platform. And I think with Obama's rhetoric, you began to see the stitching together of uh, Bernie Sanders' ideals with uh, Biden's kind of um, more centrist Democratic uh, pragmatism and resistance to like total revolution with the capital R. Um, but you saw Obama begin to pave the way for an expansion of uh, whether it's um, uh, Medicare eligibility or age uh, or uh, just the idea of universal health care. Um, you, you really saw Obama began to both talk about that being appropriate, but also to try to position Biden as having already been for that, already accepting this and, and trying to make the most of the moment. So uh, the, that sort of troika, right, uh, the combination of, of Sanders and Warren and Obama is an important week of consolidation for Joe Biden. Let me do a round robin here before we uh, head out. Uh, give me what's on your mind uh, upcoming, what we should be looking for in the news uh, ahead. Steve Leisman. You know, I wanted to comment on the earlier uh, discussion about the WHO, the WHO and Anthony Fauci, which is that uh, I watch these press briefings with a you know bit of frustration, which is that the, the president puts out things that are distractions and the press seems to take the bait every time. I'm not saying defunding 
WHO is is a distraction in and of itself, but it's not on point for what we're looking for to get the economy up and running. If I was able to go to the press briefing, I'd ask one question. I'd say, where are the tests we were promised, Mr. President? And and, and I'd ask the same question of, of both doctors up there. Uh, where are they and when are they coming? That's what's essential to bringing the economy back and bringing the, the nation back. Um, and some of these things, I think, are, are designed to distract uh, the attention from uh, what matters right now, even when we talk about the president's failings in February. I mean, those are probably worthwhile discussions to have at some point in time, but I'd like to focus on the future. And I'll be watching the economic data, not just for the disastrous numbers that are going to be coming out, but with the mind to the question of how much of this is going to remain. Are we able to come back from this relatively quickly, or is it something that's going to be with us for a while into the third quarter, into the fourth quarter, and whether or not uh, we're going to be able to resume uh, I don't think our lifestyle the way it was, but where, but but some fa- fashion of it. Julie Romner, about twenty seconds. Oh, uh, yeah, real quick. Two things on testing. Um, watching for the expansion of serology <clears throat> testing, uh, which will tell us who's had it and who has antibodies, as opposed to who has it now, uh, and some of these clinical trials on possible treatments. Margaret Taliff. Testing, testing, testing. Uh, but also, if I can just put on my political hat for a minute, um, we're going to we're going to be looking in the next week or two to see uh, who Joe Biden uh, puts on his committee to find his VP and who that VP uh, running mate is. Well, a lot uh, to cover and a lot more to come. Uh, great panel today. We really appreciate your time. Margaret Talib, politics and White House editor at Axios. Always great to have you, Margaret. Thank you. Thanks so much. Julie Robner, Chief Washington Correspondent for Kaiser Health News. Great reporting, Julie. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. And Steve Leisman, Senior Economics Reporter for CNBC. Steve, great to have you. Thanks. Real pleasure. Thank you. You can continue the conversation. Listeners get our On Point podcast at our website, onpointradio.org. Follow us on Twitter. Find us on Facebook. We're there at On Point Radio. I'm Jane Clayson. This is On Point. Support for this podcast comes from Is Business Broken, a podcast from BU Questrom School of Business. Listen on for a preview of one of the episodes. Can Profit Motive Save the Planet? Is a company that takes the climate into account a better investment? How about one that pays workers a living wage and champions transparency and board diversity? That's the idea of ESG, or Environmental Social Governance. Sounds like a wonderful story. You can make more money, you can save the planet at the same time. Almost no one is going to turn that down. It's a story that Andy King of Questrom and Veet Hennish of the Wharton School challenged during a recent event at Questrom. Professor King played the critic, who says these are problems for regulation to solve, not markets. As a famous economist said to me, you can't fix externalities with the profit motive, because the profit motive is not linked to externalities. Externalities are the byproduct of pursuing profits. So you can't fix them by getting people to even look harder at profits. Meanwhile, Veet emphasized that ESG can be an important part of the solution. Regulation matters, and we need better regulation. And we need to reallocate trillions of dollars of capital over time to the climate transition alone for getting social justice, racial justice, and other ESG issues. We're going to need the profit motive for that. No government regulation is going to reallocate tens of trillions of dollars of capital alone. It's going to be investors 
We're looking at current government regulation and future government regulation and trying to connect the dots. Find the full episode by searching for Is Business Broken wherever you listen to podcasts and learn more about the Mayrotra Institute for Business, Markets and Society at ibms.bu.edu.